Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we speak to the award-winning writer and historian Rebecca Stott. Rebecca is the author of 15 books, including Darwin's Ghost in Search of the First Evolutionists and a memoir, In the Days of Rain, which won the Costa Biography Prize. In this interview, we talk to Rebecca about her latest book, Dark Earth, a historical story set in Londinium in the 6th century. And Rebecca tells us how she immersed herself in history for five years to really understand what life was like in 500 AD on the bank of the Thames. In this conversation, we asked Rebecca about how she balances researching and writing. We talk about accuracy in historical fiction and how Rebecca uses facts as scaffolding and constraints. We talk about the importance of the history of emotions. And she says, we can't assume that people in the 17th century grieved the same way that we grieve. And she goes on to tell us about how she used faith and religion to explore the emotions of her 6th century characters. Rebecca is a master in her field, and she was so generous with what she shared. She fired up our curiosity about the past and helped us think about how we might connect the characters from history. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy this conversation with Rebecca Stott. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writers Salon, Rebecca Stott. Thank you. Rebecca, we're so honored that you decided to spend some time with us in our community. We had so much fun studying your work, your career, and with 14 books under your belt, maybe 15 with Dark Earth now, what's it feel like to have another one published? Does it feel just as special as the first, or is this like another day at the office? It does feel special. It feels special because this one probably took, so there's one other book that took longer, but this one took five years to research and write. And I think there were times when I thought, I've really bitten off more than I can chew. This is just the most ridiculously mad project. And, you know, disappearing down rabbit holes and going through draft after draft. It's not that I didn't think I would finish it because I knew that I would but I was very glad when it did come to an end because it's not that I got scared of it, but it was just the most difficult project I think I've done. And that's saying a lot because one of my books is a history book called Darwin's Ghost, which started with Aristotle and finished with Darwin. So it was an account of various thinkers before Darwin who had evolutionary ideas or ideas about mutation of species. And that was a ridiculously big project, 2,200 years. But this was harder. This was harder because I was making it up and because we know so little about the period. So, yeah, I felt really relieved and proud of myself to have finished because it was hard. Joyful, but hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, well done. 
And it's such an interesting book. And we want to dig into your research process and all of that. There is so much we could talk about today. And you've written across genre, as you've said, as we said in the intro, not only novels, you have your third novel out, Dark Earth, which we'll be digging quite a bit into. Also creative nonfiction, memoir, and your topics and the things that you write about are just as broad. We just said from Aristotle to Darwin, you write about history, archaeology, feminism, science, ghosts, occasionally. Looking back through your books and your work, do you think there's a through line through it all or some sort of driving engine, a connective tissue between these works? I think there is a through line because I think with each of the books, there's something left over, something that hasn't finished with me yet. There's unfinished business and that kind of rolls on to the next thing. So I don't know that there's an easy through line. I think I'm interested in outsiders. I think I'm interested in how how people survive patriarchy, I think, is one of the things. I think I'm also really interested in Darwinian ways of seeing and thinking. So I think there are patterns in my work, but all I know really is that something grabs me by the scruff of my neck. And I have a plan because I've been gradually going backwards. I started with my PhD was in the 19th century. And then eventually I started writing, sort of creating nonfiction about Darwin. And then I was back in the 17th century. And I was thinking, this is way out of my comfort zone. I, you know, I don't know this period. And then I was right back with Aristotle, with Darwin's ghosts. And then I thought, I can't go any further back, you know. And then suddenly there's another book right back in the, in ancient Britain that I just couldn't make it leave me alone. God, that sounds pretentious, but, you know, I knew it was too big for me to deal with and that I was not an archaeologist and I would have to read so much, but it just wouldn't go away. All the group of things, the group of questions that were pressing on me from that period wouldn't go away. So I think I just have learned to trust that, you know, that I trust that even if it's sixth century or Aristotle or whatever, that often the challenge is really you know, I'll just get into the material. I'll disappear down that rabbit hole and I'll find gorgeous things there that I know I want to write about. So I trust, I trust the curiosity. I trust that impulse, whatever it is, even, even if there's a bit of me that's just saying, no, don't make me go there. I mean, actually, I've just been, having said I can't go any further back than the sixth century, I'm now working on a television series that's set in the first century, right, in Roman Britain, And that's an absolute joy. So, yeah, maybe I'll be in the pre-language before we know it. (laughs) I love that you follow your curiosity. And I'm curious because a lot of writers in our community also follow their curiosity, but are a bit worried when their work doesn't fit into neat categories and they worry about how that might clash with what a publisher wants. And I wonder if that's something you've ever struggled with. Do publishers ever try to, or your agent ever tried to pigeonhole you? And how might you deal with that? Yeah, they did, but they don't do it anymore. And I think that's because the market's changed. I think, you know, the line between fiction and nonfiction has changed. I think people are blurring fiction and nonfiction. When I stopped being an academic and I started writing for a popular audience, the first book was my Darwin and the Barnacle, which was creative nonfiction. And then there was Ghost Walk, which was a novel, but that novel mixed fiction and nonfiction in ways that I was interested in. I was about to say, I don't think many people were doing it, but that's rubbish because there have always been people who mix fiction and nonfiction. But I was doing it in a way that suited the material I was working on. And that publisher was like, oh, 
well, should we have a different publisher for your fiction? Maybe, you know, my agent, actually my agent was saying this, maybe we should have one publisher for your fiction and one for your nonfiction. And gradually I started working with a wonderful editor at Weidenfeld and Nicholson, where I started. And she just said, no, 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 I, I want to publish both your fiction and your nonfiction because then I'll get it. You know, I'll see the connections between the different books that you're working on. And I've stayed with her. So I keep hopping from one publisher to another because I'm following this particular editor who just really understands my work and is tough on me as well. So I really, really like her. So I would say, no, I think the market's changed. I think there are such innovative mixes of fiction and nonfiction. I think I'd love to know what other people think about this. But I think we're living in an era where genre is changing quite rapidly. And I have a hunch that actually it's kind of women writers who are pushing that shift, mixing genres, perhaps a little more than the men. But that's a massively sweeping claim. And I have no proof at all. So certainly you are proof of that. And it's really reassuring to hear this. This comes up a lot for us, um, for the writers in the community. I'm glad that your editor, you found an editor who believes in you. Um, yeah. That can work across all your different books. I'd love to actually go back in time a little bit to your earlier writing life yeah. and maybe back to when you were studying at York. You completed a BA, an MA, and a PhD at York University. I wonder back then, what were your early ambitions as a writer when you set off to York? Yeah, I don't think I ever wanted to be an academic. But I discovered at university, because I became a single parent very young, I had a child when I was 19, and went back to university after that. And so in a way, I didn't have a lot of choice. Like I knew that I was going to have to earn a living. I knew that I was going to have to, you know, obviously everyone has to earn a living. But I had to earn a living for the pair of us. I had to be a bit more grown up than I perhaps would have been if I hadn't had a child. And Jacob and I were on our own for four or five years until I married and had more children. Um, So during that period, I was just really concentrating on being a successful academic because the people around me were telling me I was good and that I was good enough if I was persistent enough to get a job. So I was just focused on that. But at the same time, strange things were happening. So I remember giving giving a paper. So I was concentrating on being a career academic a professional. I gave a paper on um, Virginia Woolf at an academic conference and a woman came up to me in, I must have been about 23 then, 20, yeah, 22, 23. And she came up to me and she said, do you write fiction? And I said, I don't write fiction. No. What makes you think that? And she said, because of the way that you write. And basically what she was saying is I was a very flowery academic. You know, I was using a lot of adjectives. And using my imagination perhaps more than was usual and was more expressive perhaps in my delivery of my paper on Virginia Woolf. So it was a very imaginative paper and she gave me her card and she said, call me when you start writing fiction. And that's what I did. I mean, it was another 15 years, 20 years before actually it was Darwin and the Barnacle first. And I just want, you know, all the time that I was an academic, I just wanted to be more expressive, to be more imaginative, to let my mind go into speculation mode. You know, what if? What if this happened? What if that happened? And so in a way, it was a really good training because it meant that I 
wasn't doing that all that time. The brakes were on. And so when I did, you know, it was just like, I should have done this so much earlier. But nobody was really doing it. You know, in the world of academia, the people who went off to write novels, you know, they were a bit ridiculous. People didn't really didn't really respect them, whereas that's changed now. I think if you're a creative writer in the academy now, you're not a bit ridiculous anymore. So, yeah, so the world's changed. Like, the world's really changed since I started as a young woman trying to find my way, you know, interested in history, interested in history of science, interested in giving academic papers. I loved all of that. I loved being an academic. But at the same time, it wasn't enough. Like, it wasn't feeding part of me. There was part of me that knew, not that I could be a successful writer, but that I wasn't writing what, it was like I wasn't using muscles that I had. And that was exciting to start doing that in my 30s and 40s to discover that I could do that. Not very well to start with, but, you know, that that I did and could and wanted to. Yeah. I'm curious if you had to rewind back and you could. Would you go straight into novels, novel writing, or do you think that being an academic gave you things along your journey that actually fueled what you do now? Yeah, it's so often the right path, isn't it? You look back and you think, what if, you know, what if I'd gone straight into writing novels? I wasn't ready. And I think my novels require me, I need to be digging deep into something, into something obscure, to find the stories, to find the things that really excite me. And yeah, being an academic meant that I got to spend time in libraries and to go into archives and find really strange things like maps and old letters that just fired my imagination in a way that I wouldn't use at the time, but later, you know, would really serve me. So great question. No, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. It's a nice reflection sometimes. Just a reminder that actually, if I had to do it again, I would still do it, even though it feels like the wrong way about it. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. I'd love to talk a little bit about Dark Earth. There's so many, well, first of all, I love that it's set in London and Londonium. And I love that you say it's in the darkest of the dark ages. And your interest in the story starts with a brooch. Yeah. And I saw on your website, you were talking about how that kept you awake at night. This idea of a Saxon woman in the ruined bathhouse, dropping a piece of an item, and that fascinated you. What was it about that that piqued your interest? Okay, let me see if I can do this in a really concise way. It's tricky because this is complicated, but the Romans were in Britain for 400 years, and they built a mile-wide city out of stone. You know, it's the largest colony north of the Alps, the largest, largest building, the forum was the largest building north of the, of the Alps. So it was a massive, impressive, beautiful city, And then after 400 years of occupying Britain, they left. And then what I didn't know, and what I think loads of people don't know, is that for 400 years, that ruined city stayed empty. People didn't go in there. And the reason archaeologists know that people didn't go in there, the native Britons and the Anglo-Saxons who were coming over, is that objects that were dropped inside the city walls that can be dated to that period, you can fit into a single shoebox. So that blew my mind. It's like, okay. No one was going into this huge stone city. It was full of bathhouses and warehouses and, you know, extraordinary palaces. And yet they didn't go in. 
So why? So some of the theories are that the Anglo-Saxons and the Britons thought that it was haunted. It might just have been too dangerous to go in. You know, what was in there for them, they built in wood. They didn't build in stone, so they wouldn't have taken the stone. So one of the objects, we go back to the shoebox, one of the objects in that imaginary shoebox was a brooch dropped on top of the fallen tiles of a bathhouse on the north banks of the Thames. So imagine this bathhouse has collapsed, the roof's gone in, as much of the city would have done by this point. And an Anglo-Saxon woman, and we know it's an Anglo-Saxon woman because the brooch is an Anglo-Saxon brooch, walked across the fallen roof tiles of the Roman bathhouse and dropped her brooch. And that little brooch went down between the tiles. So I saw that brooch in the Museum of London and I could feel it back of my neck, down my arms, you know, what was she doing in there? If everyone else is too scared to go in there, if nobody else is curious enough to go in there and she does, what took her in there? Sorry, and she did. Note the slippage to present tense there. And she did. What took her in there? Was it a tryst? You know, was she on the run? Was she being chased by people? Was she looting? You know, what was this woman doing in there? So that was the portal for me. It's like a little hole, a little time machine I went down. And the story really is about that woman, Isla. I called her Isla. And at some point when you read the novel, you'll see the brooch fall on top of the fallen tiles of the bathhouse. And that's her story. Yeah. When did you think that there could be a novel here? You felt the goosebumps of the brooch, but... Yeah, I felt the goosebumps of the brooch. Well, I actually started writing it as nonfiction, first of Mm. all. And I showed it to my agent. And she just said, Rebecca, just write the novel. Because the novel kept breaking through. You know, this woman had already taken shape in my head. One of two sisters. And yeah, the novel just kept breaking through. And my agent, because she's used to this with me, like I sometimes shuffle up and down a bit with the book, you know, not knowing that I want to answer these questions, but I don't know quite how yet. She just said, just try writing 20,000 words as a novel, just see how it comes. And I did that really quickly, not 20,000. I think I wrote the first three chapters really quickly. And that then I just thought, no, you know, I'm in... I was in the wrong job before because it just wrote itself once I'd done that much research. Yeah. And did you then show those three chapters? Yeah. Yeah. And what was the feedback? Was it confirmation as well? Yes, this is the direction. I'm taking this to your editor right now. She'll be really excited. And so, yes, they both agreed. This is it. I gave them a sketch of the story. Couldn't see the ending for a long time. So the last third of the book is written in three acts. The last third really took a long time to come. But yeah, they both just said, this is the novel. This is it. Just keep going. You know, we'll wait for it. And uh, yeah, the last section took a while. And it sounds like they waited maybe a little longer than you intended. Or did you? Did you have any idea that this would take you five plus years of researching writing? No, I didn't. I mean, remember I was teaching full time during that period. So it's interesting to me now, having given up my teaching uh, last September, you know, I've I've always been a full-time academic. I've had periods where I've gone half-time to finish a book or something, but I've always been a full-time academic. And so, you know, I've always tried to write my fiction
fiction. I think fiction is really hard to write when you're working full time. I think you can do nonfiction. I find I can do nonfiction more easily around teaching, but the writing of fiction is harder. So I think it would have been different if I wasn't teaching full time. So I'm really interested now, having gone freelance, to see where my work goes, you know, what it's like to write fiction when you're not teaching full time. Because the students I'm teaching are very um, talented. The students I was teaching, very talented, very engaged in writing, keen to learn. But you're thinking about their writing all the time. You're thinking about, you know, how you might do that short story differently or getting them to think about maybe doing it in first person rather than third. So it keeps all of those technical stuff very uppermost in your mind. And I think when you're writing, for me anyway, when I'm writing, I don't want to be thinking about those things. Mm. I don't want to be thinking about technique all the time. Yeah. I think we definitely want to dig into you leaving academia too, because I think a lot of people could be curious to that. You mentioned you struggle with the third part of the novel. This took a few years to write. Did you ever think that you might not do it? That actually, you know what, I might have to give up on this? Or were you pretty steadfast in, I'm going to keep going until this is done? Any dark night of the soul moments with this book? Always, always with all of the projects. But I think now what I feel very blessed by is I have an agent and an editor who know me and remind me that, you know, this is the point where you often lose faith in the project, just keep going, stop thinking about it, just keep going, you know, and I don't get writer's block as such, but I do sort of suddenly think, oh, what I'm writing is nonsense or no one's going to like this. I lose faith in it, but I did keep going because I, I, I just, I was in so far, <laughs> I was in so far. And I knew, because when I talked to people about the book and I talked to people about the subject matter, people's eyes would, you know, just absolutely balloon. And so, yeah, I just had to be patient with myself and it. That's a beautiful reminder. And luckily you have those people in your corner, uh, your agents, your editor, to help remind you that this is part of the process. Uh, That's beautiful. I'd like to talk about a few things. I think there's going to be a lot of questions in the room around research. and plotting and structure and probably some other things. But if we could start with research. So you did spend quite a few, few years researching this world. It sounds like, it sounds like you had, at least reading about it. It sounds like you had a fun time doing it. Archaeological digs, working with a blacksmith, examining fragments of glass and coins and nails, really getting your hands, literally getting your hands into it from the Billingsgate bathhouse site where Dark Earth is set. Question about research. This is the classic one is, how does one know? And maybe how did you know, okay, I've done enough of the research. I'm, oh, I'm okay. Yeah. There was a moment. Okay. I'll tell you what my moment was with this. And then I'll answer the general question. There Please. was a moment after about a year and a half of, you know, one of the things that I always do with my research is just write like the questions I want answers to. So I just have lists and lists of questions and it might take me a month to answer one question or a day to answer one question, you know, cause you follow one paper to another, one book to another. But I try to keep the questions really close so that I don't get lost. So it's like your job is to answer these questions to your satisfaction, not to know everything about the sixth century. You know, there were lots of things I wasn't interested about the sixth centuries. I didn't need to know everything. But I read and read and read and I piled up books and books and books. 
And there was a day when I started writing, a little while after I started writing, where I put all the books into two boxes, all the papers, all the notebooks, everything, took them to the garage and slammed the door on them hard. Right? It was something about the slamming of the door. I remember that so clearly, you know. It was like, it was that I had to be firm with it and with myself. I had to put metal between me and it, you know. <laughs> and it's the other thing that I do when I'm writing is I always write with an internet blocker on. So I use one of these internet blockers, an app. And the one I use is called Freedom. And you put it on, it says, how long do you want? And it's, I say, four hours. And then this little banner comes across, your freedom session has started. And it's like someone has unlocked my brain. You know, that's when I really start writing because it's like, yes, no internet. I can't go there. I can't look anything up. So the combination of having freedom on a daily basis and the material in the garage, you know, the garage is there. I know I can check things when I need to, but I now know everything I need to know. And how I reach that point, that stuff starts being irritating. You know, my obsession with it, you know, I need to know a bit more and a bit more, just starts to irritate me. And then I want it out. I don't want to see it. It's got to go. And I do know how you know when you reach it, but I think, you know, you know, you just, and you have to trust that the details of that sword that you want to describe, you can fill in later. You know, you can just go back to those books and fill them in. But I do think you need to do a quite a lot of research first, for me anyway, as a historical novelist to be able to see your world, to know that you could walk across Londinium and know what it looks like and where the forum is and what the river smells like and, you know, how the swords are made, just so that you can see and feel it before you set up. Love that. You really painted a picture slamming that door. (laughs) I think the physicality of it probably helped. I'm curious, are you writing while you're researching? And what does that balance look like? And how did those things weave, weave in together? Usually what I'm doing is I have a lot of notebooks and I go and sit in a library and I attend to the questions that I've asked. You know, what did Londinium look like? What was it like to walk through it? Was the bridge still standing? You know, and some of these questions I can answer by reading books. Sometimes I'll go to an archaeologist and say, mostly the archaeologists in this period will say, we don't know because there's no evidence, you know, one way or the other. But at the same time, there's enough that's inspiring the writer that I'm, I've also got a notebook on the go, which has just got ideas in it, you know, of characters and dialogues and scenarios and things that are just popping up through the research all the time. And I have to catch those because they're gold dust. And when I go back and look through the fragments of the notebooks that I've been, you know, the creative notebooks, as opposed to the academic notebooks or the research notebooks, when I go back, I just think, oh, my goodness, you know, it's just gorgeous things in there. Little thoughts, you know, little thoughts, little images, little conversations, lines. I don't always use them all, but they are really rich pickings. I'm curious about your research. You're doing a lot of research into the different periods that you're writing about. How important is it for you to be accurate? It is important to be as accurate as I can for me, not because I think I'm writing a history lesson, but because I think that the facts create a kind of scaffolding or framework that I can't move. And I think that's useful. The analogy for me is like, if you're a sonnet writer, 
the fact that there's only certain syllables to the line is actually a constraint. And that constraint produces something really good. So if I can just move my scaffolding around all the time, you know, change that fact and change that fact. I haven't got that unusual, maybe architecture is better than scaffolding. You know, this thing happened then. She dropped the brooch then. You know, the Anglo-Saxons coming across then. You know, I didn't have a lot of architecture with this because we don't have a lot of facts for this period, but I missed them. When I was working in the 17th century, I had 10 times more facts at my fingertips. I was working on Isaac Newton for Ghost Walk and people didn't know much about Isaac Newton, but they did know about, you know, where he was at any one time and what was happening in Cambridge and what the streetlights looked like and, you know, all of that stuff. And I didn't have that for this and I missed it. So I think the facts for me are really important, not because they're true, but because they produce the architecture, the things that I can't move. And I have to weave around them. It's like maybe another analogy would be weaving, actually, where you need this, you know, the warp and the weft. You need the strings that you're weaving through. So for me, that's always been a rule of thumb. I don't change the facts. I also heard you mention in a previous interview that historical fiction and academic history are on a spectrum rather than being opposite. Does that relate to what you're talking about? And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about this and why, why that matters for fiction writers, writers of historical fiction. Yeah, I think saying something like that 10 years ago would have been heresy. I could never have said that in the academic world 10 years ago, but Hilary Mantel changed things. You know, she, she really changed things because, how to put it, I just think your vantage point is different when you are writing fiction. You're trying to see it from the moment in time. And that's a very, very different thing. So, you know, if you're Hilary Mantel, you're trying to see the world through Cromwell's eyes. And that is a valid and really fascinating way of looking at history, not just as, you know, big narratives, battles and politics and, you know, great men, but getting inside someone's skin and trying to see how the world looked like for them. So the equivalent for me was Darwin. When I first wrote Darwin and the Barnacle, my job then was to try to get into Darwin's eyes before he'd published, or inside his skin, before he'd published The Origin of Species. And remembering that he did there were certain things he didn't know so not applying what we know now to what he knew then so that's a really difficult question to answer but for me if I want to know about a particular period reading novels from the period or about the period as well as reading history books about the period are all part of building a picture finding out stuff and I think it's something that definitely comes up with some of the writers in our community worrying about accuracy of facts and not sure how what license they have to be creative. Or to oh, use we've their got total license, yeah, total license. I think, but I just think for me as an artist, changing the facts is not about being right or wrong or truthful or not truthful. It's it's about because the history is so fascinating. The facts are so you know. So starting there, that's your material. Thank you. That's really interesting. I would love to now turn to 
how you plot, how you outline. I read somewhere that um, for Ghost Walk, when you started that, that you were in a taxi writing on a scrap of paper. And I wondered how you think about outlining, perhaps for Dark or for any of your books. What's your philosophy? Do you need to outline a book beforehand? How much of it do you need to outline? Yeah, well, I mean, the weird thing about Ghost Walk, and it really was such a weird thing, was I was reading about Isaac Newton, a biography, and I had to take a taxi ride very early in the morning. And something, I mean, it's an astonish. It was an, I still look back on it and it gives me the creeps because it was so strange. I'd never written a novel before. I got into that taxi. It was early morning. It was fog outside. There was somebody else in the taxi. And he was a meteorologist. I won't give you the details, but by the time I reached the airport, 45 minutes later, I had the whole novel. I mean, I didn't have the whole novel. That's absurd. But, you know, I had the premise of the novel. I had the structure of the novel. I had the characters. And I had no paper. So I had to hold it in my head until I got to the airport then buy some paper. I mean, I, I think, no, I did have some paper at the back of a chapbook. And then I sellotaped the back, you know, those few notes that I'd taken into a notebook. It's never happened to me before or since. So in answer to your question, I think every book is different. I wish that would happen to me again. It was an amazing experience. And the book is so weird. I mean, you know, it's not like a plot that's off the shelf or anything. It's a really strange dual time frame novel. So God knows how that happened or what produced it. It's never happened to me since. And every book is different. Sometimes I've got, I can see two acts and not the third, like in Darker. A lot of the time it changes as I go along. So I might have a broad outline of act one, act two, act three. Oh, yeah. But this one was really interesting because I had three acts, one, two, and three. And then I suddenly realized that the reason I couldn't get any further was I needed five acts, not three. And the middle needed longer. And once I discovered that, then I could still keep my broad outline, but I needed five blocks, not three blocks. And I, you know, I'm sure people who are listening to this, many people have discovered that your structure doesn't quite hold what you're trying to do. You have to change it and then suddenly you're away again. So I don't have any pearls of wisdom about plot. Sometimes I just muddle through sections and then I suddenly see it. You know, maybe, oh, you know, one of the things in Ghost Walk, which I saw the whole thing, I'd finished the novel and I suddenly realised that the person who I thought had done the deed hadn't done the deed. It was another character. So I had to go back and change everything. So, you know, quite big changes can happen really late on. I don't know what the answer is to any of this stuff. I know people who have a spreadsheet with their plot on it. And they write really good books. Some of my students have done it that way. I'm not that person. I, you know, it's a combination of having a, an idea of the arc of the narrative, where you're starting and where you're ending, but finding out as I go along. And I wish that wasn't the case because I think I could be much more efficient if I did it in a more structured way. But it, that's just how it is for me. That a lot of the, the gorgeous stuff I discover en route, not right up front yeah and appreciate that every writer is different and every book might be different yeah it's just really fun to actually see behind the desk I would love to talk about this idea of history of emotions I heard that you taught a module on the history of emotions 
Yeah, no, not a module. I taught, taught uh, used to teach historical fiction at UEA, University of East Anglia, which has this fantastic creative writing programme. And I was the only one who taught historical fiction on it. So I designed a course and we read historical novels every week, but we also read a lot of really interesting material around historiography, which is basically the theory of writing history, I guess. And one of the weeks we looked at was history of emotions and history of mentalities. And they're both fields in historical study. History of emotions is where, I guess, I mean, you can't summarize history of emotions very easily, but people who work in that field would say that we can't assume that people who lived in the 17th century grieved the same way that we grieve. When child mortality was so much higher, can we be certain that losing a child or losing three children would feel the same? You know, maybe it did, but we can't be sure. And another thing that happens in history of emotions or people talk about in history of emotions is that we might all feel similar feelings, but there might be different cultural expectations for the way that you express it. So for us as students of historical fiction, I brought this material to the table again and again and just like, how do you know? So to give you an example, say somebody's writing about a deeply religious person in the 16th century who's about to go to the stake because they're either Catholic or they're Protestant and they're about to be burned at the stake. So they're traveling towards that dreadful moment of their expected death. What are they doing? Well, to my mind, they'll be praying. But how do we manage that? How do we manage their interior prayer life for a contemporary reader who doesn't have a prayer life, who doesn't have a faith? You know, so how can we be accurate to our character in the 16th century, create their inner world and not put off contemporary readers? You know, so how do we bridge from our world to their world, their differences of their faith, their worldview, what they believe? what they feel and the way that they are expected to express or not express that feeling. So all of that is a puzzle. And I just think it's really interesting to think about how do you inhabit characters who are very alien to us in their emotional landscapes and make them real for us? How do we bridge that gap? And I think Mantel does it absolutely superbly. So. And how do you unlock that puzzle? So, you know, you were so interested in the Saxon woman who had dropped her brooch. What did you do? What did you think about or what did you consider to try and explore the mindset of a Saxon woman in that time? I always begin with thinking about, you know, faith and superstition and the gods, because, you know, partly because of my background. But I spent a lot of time trying to find out what this Anglo-Saxon woman and her sister, what gods they would have worshipped and how they would have worshipped those gods and what kind of sacrifices they might make. One of the things we know, because from looking at the River Thames, is that it's full of votive offerings. People have thrown a beautiful bracelet in or a wonderful sword or, you know, they are petitioning the gods to let them cross the river or to save their mother or to save the crops. So people are constantly putting things into water or into the roots of trees. So how, what would you sacrifice? Would you sacrifice your dog? Would you sacrifice your favourite bracelet? You know, how far would you go to plead with the gods for something? So I tried to get into that petitionary mindset, you know, doing deals with the gods. 
but also being genuinely scared that the gods are present around you. So that's the kind of thing I did. But because my world in Dark Earth is full of people from lots of different places, they're not just Anglo-Saxons, they're also from North Africa and, you know, everyone's got different gods. So that was fascinating to me to try and think of building a community where lots of people have different gods and different belief systems and different ways of sacrificing or petitioning. So, yeah, maybe that's why it took so long. You do seem to have an endless curiosity. I feel like you're driven by this curiosity and it's it's infectious, actually. I'm very curious about these different civilizations that I hadn't really thought about before. I have another quote that I read where you had said, I don't write to teach, I write to show or to resurrect. And I love this idea of not trying to teach the reader, but it's quite hard. As writers, we might have things that we want to tell our reader. How can we avoid sounding like we're teaching? I'm sure I do sometimes. I hope I don't. And I hope that I, because you get really excited about something, you know, about sword making, for instance. So in this novel, my Isla is a swordsmith. She makes swords. And I went and spent a day with a fabulous swordsmith who knows how the Anglo-Saxons made their swords. So I knew, and I wanted to show that I knew. And in the end, it was really interesting because I thought, well, my readers are really going to be interested in this too, but I've got to find a way of doing it without a character going, let me tell you how I make my swords. <laughs> so I had a lot of scenes in the forge and I had scenes where the father and the daughter work together or talk together. And so I tried to show it rather than, you know, it's the show don't tell thing, right? I tried to show the sword making but you can't just run a scene where a woman is making a sword. You know, things, other things have got to be going on. So one of the things that I have enjoyed writing towards the end, and I'll try not to do any spoilers here, is to have a love affair developing between two people working together in a forge. Their bodies up very, very close and the smoke and the sweat and the smell of each other's bodies. So that's an example of, of trying to show and resurrect bring it to life and not not tell. So many gems here, Rebecca. I feel like this is a mini masterclass in historical fiction. Um, thank you so much. And you did I'm mention- I'm still learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> well, yeah. we're grateful for everything you've given us. And so you, you talked about your creative writing teaching, which you've just stepped away from last year. And we've talked about a number of things here, research, outlining, or lack of <laughs> lack thereof, history of emotions. Is there anything that you teach or you taught in your historical writing class that we haven't covered, but that you think is really integral to this craft and you think it's important for us to talk about? Oh, the dialogue thing. We talked a lot about dialogue. You know, if you're writing 17th century characters, do you have them speak in 17th century ways? You know, if you're writing Quakers, do they say thee thou the whole time? You know, if you're absolutely accurate to the way that they spoke, it will be dreadful, I think, for me anyway, as a reader. Not dreadful, but hard work. And they wouldn't feel easily like ourselves. You know, so I'm often in favour of using quite simple, contemporary, sounding dialogue, but throwing in idioms from the period. So they talk in quite plain ways, but they might use a quaint little phrase that would have been common to the time. So I think peppering idiom across the dialogue is really good. There's an amazing story that we looked at every year and the students just loved. 
by a writer called Wells Tower, American writer. And he wrote a story called Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. So find it. I think it's in a collection of short stories called Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. All contemporary stories about contemporary masculinity, except for the last one, where he has a bunch of Vikings about to go and rape and pillage. And he has them speak, his Vikings get up, they say goodbye to their wives, they get the boat ready and they go and just smash the hell out of a monastery and rape and pillage. It's a really violent story and brilliant. And these young Vikings speak like contemporary New York gang members. And they use entirely New York idiom, New York street language. And it works brilliantly because what he's then doing is asking you to think about the connection between gangs and gangs, like masculinity across the ages, not making them all the same, but just asking you to think about brotherhood and badges of honour and the way in which men, you know, certain kinds of men will, will strut and perform and so on. I just think it's brilliant. And it's really shocking to read to start with. And then you get the measure of it and you think, this is just genius. So I love it. Not everyone will love it, but I think it's genius. Is there any other homework you'd send us with? Anything else oh, to read? Oh, I don't read? think of anything else. I think historical short stories are really interesting because you've got to turn your story on a pin and there aren't very many in Britain. There is one, oh, I can't remember the title of it. There's a really, really good one by, no, it's gone, it's gone. My brain is giving up on me. But yeah, historical short stories are so interesting because with a novel, you can set the world and create it slowly and with all the detail. But with a short story, you've got to create it in tiny little miniature. And so I think historical short stories are an amazing genre. But there's not a huge number of them in this in the UK anyway. Well, thank you for that. And if you do think of it, feel free to email us and we can send that oh, to everyone. Frustrated me. It's all good. Um, you've spoken about leaving academia as leaving the ivory tower. And um, we're curious about how that transition has been for you. What has been difficult about leaving? Well, first of all, I used the word ivory tower ironically, because I don't think it's so ivory anymore. And the little radio program that I made that was called Leaving the Ivory Tower was about that. Really. Universities have changed so much in the UK. Anyway, I'm not going to go into all of that. You can listen to the radio program if you go to my radio page on my website and find that. Um, we'll be sure to share that as well. Yeah, yeah. it's a, just a nine minute piece, but it's, uh, yeah, just exploring why universities aren't quite what they were when I joined all those years ago, British University. So I always knew I wanted to go freelance at some point, And I was, after 32 years of teaching, I had been paying into a pension and I could just about afford to go and so I was lucky in that respect, you know, that I wouldn't have to live entirely on my writing because I don't make enough to live entirely on my writing. But it would supplement my small pension. So that's when I decided I was going to go, went in September, gave myself three months to decompress and just sort of stare at walls and go for long walks and hang out with my dog and not do anything or search for new work. And then you know, several people said to me, if you, you know, things will come, they will come of their own accord. And they did. I said to myself, in January, I will start working again. 
and being freelance full time. And then the projects that will start to come in and they did. <laughs> so I think I was hugely lucky. So first of all, someone approached me to ask if I would co-write the film script of my memoir in the days of rain. And it had been optioned for something like three years. And suddenly the option had come back to me because it, you know, options fail all the time. It had come back to me. So I was able to say to this writer, damn it, yes, let's do it. You know, I've never written a film script before. You show me how to do it. We'll write it together. So we have written a first draft since January. And she's taught me how to write film script. You know, like I really wanted to learn how to write new things. So we haven't shown it to anybody yet. I think it's really good. But we need to go, she says it needs two or three more drafts. So we'll do two or three more drafts. So she taught me and I, it was like going back to school. You know, she was lovely, lovely woman, very talented. We watched loads of films together to see what our different tastes were for what we were writing. We had several days of just scribbling on big, big bits of brown paper. So we did it. And then on the back of that, no, on the back of Dark Earth, I was asked to be, I can't say too much about this actually, um, but I was asked to be the historical consultant on a TV series. I won't say what or where, but it's a massive, like three series, television series, set in first century Britain under the Romans. And it now turns out that I'm co-creator. So I started as historical consultant and now I'm co-creator. And that, you know, I sometimes think, what? <laughs> you know, again, they're just saying to me, you don't have to know how to write television. You're on the writing team. There's several other people who know what they're doing here. You've just got to come up with the ideas. So it's a joy. It's terrifying sometimes. And I think, what am I doing here? This is mad. But, and I have another novel that's starting to take shape in my head that's actually set in the near future. So having gone all the way back to the first century, which is where I'm, so I'm working on the first century and the near future at the same time, but that's only glimmers in my head. So three projects at the same time, never done that before. But yeah, giving it a go. It might be a disaster, but I'm going to give it a go. How exciting. That's so cool. It is exciting and, and lucky. Like I'm sure, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, the timing was good. The timing was very good. Yeah. It also strikes me, I'm sure it strikes you too, Pearl, that you seem to be someone that allows things to open up. And it sounds like you have faith in things yeah. working out. And I feel like it's maybe a nice lesson for all of us to keep chasing our curiosity, to have faith that things will unfold for us and to be open, yeah. open to those opportunities yeah. that might come. You're a great, a walking example of that. And it's so nice to see you having fun at this stage, yeah. stage in your career, which is, which is so cool. Oh, thank you. I'm curious, are there any unfinished or abandoned, abandoned books sitting in your desk? Yeah. Two. A, a graveyard of yeah. books? Yeah. Two. Two. What happened with those? If you don't mind sharing. Yeah. So the first was my first novel. So I wrote a novel before Ghost Walk that was mad, original late 19th century, sat on the Thames, sat on a, in a flooded Victorian London. Loved writing it. 
but although parts of it were very, very good, and I think the agent who finally took me on rejected me at that stage because she said there was too much to do with the book. You know, she was right. It was going to need taking apart and putting back together again, and I didn't have the skills at that point to do that. But by number two, Ghost Walk, there was enough for the agent and the editor to believe that we could take it apart and put it back together again a bit. They didn't need to do so much. And then after I wrote In the Days of Rain, there was a period, maybe about the same time. Anyway, I can't remember. Not that long ago, I started writing a novel about a mother who loses a child, contemporary novel. And I just couldn't make that work. And, yeah, it just got darker and darker. And, you know, wasn't based on any historical research it was completely contemporary I think what I learned from that was that I often as I write need to have something the framework the architecture didn't have it there there wasn't anything and so it was just veering all over the place and yeah I gave it up so yeah two I'm sure many people have I don't know do people say they have a little more it, it really varies. Yeah, I don't know if a set number, but we have always have a hunch that there's some hiding underneath yeah. there, and it's it's nice to see because we're kind of often in the weeds with writers, and you know we might be in those messy moments where someone spent a few months and they're trying to figure out what is this thing, yeah. and do I sunset it or do I press on with it? And so it's nice to hear your experience. So thank you for that. I would love to ask you about your writing habits. I realize every writer is different, but I'm curious about how often you write and what helps you get in flow. Yeah. When I'm in the, when I've started a novel, I do try, if I can, to write every day. I know that, you know, some people say you don't have to, some people say you do have to. I'm not saying anything other than what I do which is to try to come to the table at the same time, roughly put freedom on and write for three or four hours. I can never do really more than that. I can edit for much longer. And every now and again, when I'm writing fiction for the first time, first draft, I will go way over because I'll disappear into it. But if I do that too often, I get ill. You know, like I honestly just have a crash and... Have to go to bed for a few days so I know what I'm capable of and I know that taking it pushing myself too hard or allowing myself to write too much in a given day so I try to have the same space that I mean this is all from the wonderful book by Dorothea Brand Becoming a Writer you come across that book wonderful book um sure she, advocates, she advocates having a, a space which is the only thing you do in that space is write that project. So you don't have emails there and you don't have old bills there and you don't have anything other than that project and that you only come to the table, to that table, to that desk, to that space to write that project so that you're on sort of Pavlov's dogs, you know, <laughs> you just come and somehow you're already writing before you come to the table. So I try to do that. That works for me. Um, walking. I have to walk a lot in the afternoon. So usually I have a meal in mid-morning, quite a big one, around about 11. And by about quarter past 11, I'm at the table and I can do three or four hours on. So something about the food rush that gets me going. I know some people like to do empty stomach, but for me, it's full stomach. 
and then I can write for three or four hours and then I make myself go for a walk and wind down. The editing is completely different. The editing I can do anywhere. And sometimes some books, so in the days of rain, my, my memoir about my childhood, which was a very disturbing book to write, I could only write that after midnight. So however disciplined I was, I'd bring myself to the table, I'd do all the usual things, it just would not be written. And then I discovered that if I got into bed and started writing at midnight, then I could sometimes write till three in the morning. It was something about not being seen. It was something about being secret, about doing something that I couldn't be caught doing. Really weird, the whole book, midnight till three. Not every night, but, you know, because I'd have died. <laughs> I was teaching as well at the same time. But yeah, every book's slightly different, but I try to be disciplined in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So I feel like it's a reminder that every project has a different personality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not only every writer is different, but every writer's project could be different. Yeah. yeah. So and you have to get the measure of it. It has to get the measure of you. You have to get the measure of it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So cool. This is so much fun, Rebecca. I'm just lapping it up. I think a lot of people here are too. How can we stay in touch with you? What's the best place? Are you on any social media website? Where can I'm we hang out with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Rebecca Stott 64 and I have a website where, you know, there's quite a lot of material there about my process and so on on my website. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers' Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again.